Gogen was a great, great master, once said meditation is to study oneself. To study oneself is to forget oneself. To forget oneself is to be awakened by all things. To be awakened by all things is to let body and mind of self and others fall away. The liberation of our own mind and heart is actually, of course, the essence of Buddhist teaching. And really everything that we do in the practice is in the service of liberation, the service of freedom. In our practice, we are learning about how to heal and how to release places of conflict, of struggle, of contractedness in our heart and mind. We're learning about how to release and to liberate places of fear, of grasping, of confusion. We're learning to liberate our heart and mind, we might say, from misunderstanding from separation, from alienation, essentially through nurturing wisdom. We're learning to release and liberate anger and fear through loving kindness and through compassion. In many ways, this journey or this path is much more dedicated to undoing and to untangling than to doing. It's dedicated to undoing, untangling some of the knots, we might say, of misunderstanding that keep us tied to contractedness and fear. In mindfulness practice, we're very much encouraged to know when our mind and heart is contracted or distracted, when our mind or heart is affected by wanting, by anger, by unconsciousness. And we're also encouraged really to know when the mind is filled with appreciation, with loving kindness, with compassion. When our mind, to know when our mind is rooted in equanimity, when it's exalted, when it's immeasurable. And we're encouraged to know the mind that is liberated. Now, we might say, when we think of this, that we might say, okay, well, the unliberated mind is really familiar territory. And we wouldn't need a long description, maybe, of what the unliberated mind might look like. But what does the liberated mind look like? This is what we're actually asked to explore, to attend to. The liberated mind is a mind, we might say, where there's no stickiness. It doesn't cling to anything. We might say it's a mind without boundaries that's not defined by anything, nor has any particular insistence on defining anything. We might say that the liberated mind is a mind that's not deceived. It's not fooled by the world of passing appearances. And so it doesn't get hooked anywhere. 
You might say that the liberated mind is a mind that's unshakable. It's receptive. It's fluid. It's open. And I think certainly we could say it's not bound to suffering, but is radiant and immeasurable. Now, when we hear this, we probably might be tended to think, well, the liberated mind is, is a few steps away from this mind that I'm experiencing on a moment-to-moment level. We might see the liberated mind as being, you know, something apart, some other creature, something that happens to somebody else. What is also really at the essence of this teaching is that the liberated mind is actually really not something to attain. It's not something we gain. Some other place, some other time, after we've suffered enough or after we've become perfect enough. Rather really what is at the essence of this teaching is that the liberated mind is really not going to be found anywhere else except in this mind we're experiencing now. And that it's not dependent on taming, on subduing, on overcoming. It's not dependent upon transcending this mind. But on liberating this very mind and heart we experience from the imprisonment of its own misunderstanding. Liberating from the imprisonment of restlessness, of agitation, of conflict. In fact, it would probably be true, we might say, that this mind that we experience now on a moment-to-moment level is simply the mind of the Buddha with amnesia. We've forgotten. We've forgotten. So what we do in the practice, of course, is learn to recollect, to discover that this very mind we experience now, no matter what is happening in it, is in itself a reflection of emptiness. I do feel it's also somewhat important to understand that emptiness is not a state. It's not even a personal understanding or insight about my world. And that emptiness is also not the absence of anything. And sometimes when we think of the word emptiness, we have some very kind of, um, we might say, habitual associations with it. You know, we think of a, an empty meditation room when everybody has left. We think of the empty dinner plate when we've eaten our food. We think of the empty teacup after we've drunk our tea. And we often think of emptiness in a deeper sense, a meditative sense, as also being the absence of things, dependent upon getting rid of things. And when we think of emptiness in this way, then, of course, I think we fall into this rather futile work of trying to get rid of the thoughts and the feelings and the objects that seem to suffocate or submerge emptiness. But a better question to ask is, what does emptiness look like in a room full of people? What does emptiness look like in the full dinner plate? What does emptiness look like before we've even taken our first sip of tea? What does emptiness look like that's really not dependent on getting rid of anything at all? 
Personally, I always feel that nature is a great ally, a great friend in coming to understand the nature of emptiness. When we're in touch with nature, there's so many things that, that we do see. One of the things, of course, we see when we really look at nature and study it closely is the process of inevitable change. <clears throat> we see in nature the cycles of birth and death, of arising and passing. We see the way that spring turns into summer, summer into autumn autumn into winter, and the whole cycle that continues. We see the birds that built their nest here in the spring, you know, are now leaving some of them. The eggs that were laid turned into birds. We've seen the abundance of the leaves on the tree begin to fade away and fall away. And as we see in nature that we plant a bulb in the fall, in the autumn, and it seems like nothing happens for months at a time. And then suddenly in the springtime, these shoots appear that turn into these wonderful flowers that gradually wilt and fall away. Now the flower that emerges is not exactly, of course, the same as the bulb that we planted. And yet even when the bulb is invisible, it's in the process of turning into something else. The flower, though, is also, of course, not separate from the bulb. The daffodil bulb does not become a rose. It's an ongoing process of rising and passing, of conditions, of connection, of appearing and fading away. When we also study nature closely, we actually see that really nobody is actually making all of this happen that there's a naturalness to the appearing and the fading, the arising and passing, that because the conditions are there, you know, the conditions of the seasons, the conditions of the soil, the conditions of the sun, the conditions of the rain, the conditions of the person who planted the bulb, that all of these actually combine and weave together for this process of flowering and fading to happen. Now, if we changed any of those conditions, it's not as if nothing would happen. It's just that something else would happen. A different process would occur. A different formation would appear. A different cycle of arising and passing would occur. Now, this process, of course, that we see so clearly and so simply in nature, is no different than the process that is happening everywhere, including within our own lives. There is nothing that is independent of it. Our bodies, our minds, our feelings, our lives, everything we see, everything we hear, everything we touch, everything we taste and experience, it all has its own season of arising and fading away. We were a baby, we turned to a child, a child to a teenager, a teenager to an adult, and this process is still happening. We don't stop here. This is not the end, by the way. <laughs> this is going on. 
and we will turn into something else. It's the season of our lives, the changing formations of our bodies, the changing formations of who we see ourselves to be in any moment, the changing formations of our thoughts and memories and feelings arising because of conditions. If we put together a thought and a feeling about it, a memory or an association, a like or a a dislike, we end up with a formation that we might call anger or greed or sadness that will last until the conditions change and then it will turn into something else. If we put together the smell from the kitchen of lunch cooking, the nose to smell it, the mind to perceive it, a like or an association. We might have the formation of this body and mind arriving at the dining room an hour before lunch is served. If we put together the, the, the condition of a body sensation, an aversion or fear, we have the formation of the suffering meditator. If we put together the sound and the perception of mosquito and the association, we might have the formation of the hand reaching out to move it on in this world. Conditions and formations, they mix together, they blend together to create the changes and movements of what we call our life. The ease with which we can see that in nature, the ease with which we can accept that process in nature, it comes to us more easily. We don't always find the same sense of ease and peace within the changing formations of our own seasons. There's a poem, it says, We accept the graceful falling of mountain cherry blossoms, but it's much harder for us to fall away from our own attachment to the world. Something else we come to understand as we really study nature is that the changing forms, the changing processes in nature, they don't argue so much. The emerging shoot of the daffodil is not shouting and saying, I can't wait to be a beautiful flower that everyone will admire. The daffodil is not longing to be a rose. And in the season of things beginning to fade away, the daffodil is not shouting and saying, wait, this shouldn't be happening. This should last longer. In the seasons and the changes and the shifting formations of our own life, our own body and mind and experience, of course, what we see is that we do a lot of arguing. This should not be happening. This should last longer. My experience should be different. The long list of likes and dislikes are ways of measuring and judging what should be, who I am, what I should become, what and who you are, and what you should become. And all of the cascade of thoughts, fears, resistances, agitations, 
that follow in the wake of believing appearance to be reality. We find ourselves describing the world, describing other people, and describing ourselves by our appearance. And as we do this, our world seems actually not very empty, but often very full. And within that fullness, there tends to be a great deal of agitation. Sometimes we get caught in the flow of events, the flow of appearances. And we find when we get caught in the flow of appearances, sometimes we're struggling with the world of thoughts or the world of feelings or the world of sounds or we're struggling with the ideas of who we are. And we do at times suffer. And what makes that happen? What makes that happen? You know, once I saw somebody wearing a t-shirt in California, it said, suffering's optional. It's a nice idea. (laughs) Pain may not be optional in this life. But suffering may be optional. Why do we suffer? What is it that's introduced into this ebb and flow of life that makes it so difficult? whether we say inner life or outer life, what is it that seems to distort the kind of naturalness, the transparency and the emptiness of it? We might say that what is introduced is another condition. It's the condition of clinging, of grasping, of holding, of identification, whatever word we choose. It's that movement within ourselves that attempts to fix things in space and in time, and in fixing them to give them an identity, a designation, separate and apart from everything else. Nagarjuna apparently once said, clinging is to insist on being someone, not to cling is to be free to be no one. We might say that clinging and holding is actually the condition for amnesia. That clinging and holding is the condition for forgetting freedom. And that non-clinging, non-identification, is the condition for remembering freedom for resting in emptiness. When we cling to a thought or identify with a thought, what we think we become. We become agitated, we become remorseful, we become impatient, and we forget who we were before that thought arose. When we identify with a feeling, cling to a feeling, that is what we become angry or sad or fearful or judgmental, and we forget who we were before that feeling arose. When we identify with an experience, then the experiencer is born and formed, better, worse, improving, failing, enjoying, suffering. And who were we before something was fixed and made separate and apart from everything else? In fixing anything, 
then the appearance is mistaken for the truth. And these long monologues follow all the words and judgments and preferences that reveal this process of fixing things. I am, you are, the world is, all our opinions that isolate one thing from another, that are born of our attachment to a particular view of reality. Recently, when I was uh, teaching in Israel, I, I came out of the office door one morning, and many meditation centers, by the way, tend to be sort of magnets for the local dog population. So I have this whole long thing of dog stories. This is a new dog story. <laughs> <laughs> I came out of the office, and I saw one of the dogs lying down outside of the office, sleeping, it seemed, and growing out of the dog's head was this great big tumor, this great big growth growing out of its head. And my first response, you know that response you get sometimes when you see something really terrible, really horrendous, you just kind of stop and you feel stunned? That was my first response. And then I noticed the mind kick in with this little thought, you know, I wonder if they're taking care of this dog. And then I noticed this other thing kick in, which was metta, actually. And I I spent the rest of the morning doing metta for this dog with this tumor growing out of its head. And at lunchtime, I went back to the office. And I saw the dog sitting up beside its tumor. (laughs) And the tumor was this big rock that was actually the exact same color as the dog. And the way the dog had been lying, it was going out of his head. And there was this other moment of being totally stunned. Of, There's the dog sitting beside his tumor. And it was so interesting for me to see this entire morning dedicated to sending loving kindness to this cancerous dog who had no cancer in the first place. I mean, it wasn't, of course, a wasted morning. It was quite lovely in many ways. But for me, it was so interesting to see this perception of reality that seemed so definite. I can't even question whether this dog had a chin. It was just so obvious. <laughs> now, that story could have, of course, you know, this will be, isn't that what happens for us all the time? You know, we see the appearance, the appearance is the reality, we respond to it sometimes skillfully, and of course, sometimes really not skillfully at all. You know? Somebody leaves their shoes outside the meditation room and we fall over them. You know, how long can we spend with that story, that appearance of reality as this mindless, insensitive, ignorant meditator, you know, who constantly leaves their shoes for me to fall over? It's interesting to question. I mean, when we're in them, in those constructions where, where appearance has been mistaken for reality, of course, what we don't see is change. We don't see the formation always of that, the ebb and flow of experience. We find ourselves believing so strongly in it, in our description of the world. Now, some of those formations and those constructions, of course, we see changing really quickly in our lives. You know, you know, we can be sitting at breakfast, you know, really happily eating our porridge, you know, uh, qu- quite joyous, you know, and. We think it's forever, don't we? And, and yet that can be so totally forgotten 
by the appearance of the agitated, restless meditator that arises before lunch that's never had a moment of happiness in their entire life. They're sure of it. They're sure of it. They've never been happy. They've always felt like this. It's so interesting. And some of the ways our reality shifts, of course, they're not so quick. Some of our descriptions and some of our appearances are much longer history, a much heavier weight. You know, those constructions we have about how I'm useless, you know, how I'm inadequate, how I'm unlovable. The very fixed nature, the very deep insistence on being someone is in itself suffering and pain. And we might say that in many ways our practice is a process of waking up from those beliefs. Someone, I read something when somebody said, when I could no longer conceptualize myself, the healing began. When I could no longer fix myself anywhere, the healing began. The liberation from the belief and the appearances. Now, clinging and identification is released, and the mind and heart actually are liberated. They're not fixed anywhere. They're no longer defined by the contents of our experience. This is a huge freedom. To not be defined by the contents of your experience. Because when you're not defined by the contents of your experience, you're not confined in the role of the experiencer. In the role of the thinker, the victim, the listener, the doer. And the nature of life, of course, in not being fixed. The nature of life, of course, of our body and mind is that it continues to ebb and flow and to touch us deeply with its richness to teach us. And we're engaged fully with that ebb and flow of life, participating, engaged, yet never lost. This is not something that's very complicated. This is not some kind of esoteric secret initiation. We can reflect on this and clearly see this in our own experience moment by moment. You might take it upon yourself to find a sense of I alone. It doesn't make any sense. You won't find it. Just a sense of I. I don't make any sense without you, without an other to define me. The thinker does not arise without the thought. The experiencer arises with the sound, with the thought, with the memory. I am defined by other, by you, and other or you is defined by how I see you, whether inwardly or outwardly. This process of interaction, this process of definition of construction is going on whenever there is clinging. Now, the nature of our body of mind, of course, doesn't vanish in the understanding of emptiness. What does vanish is the interruption of this flow of movement, this flow of life. The interruption, the fixing, the defining by clinging disappears. And then life, of course, arises and passes according to its own nature. When we introduce the condition of clinging or of identifying, 
we initiate a process which in this tradition is called papancha. And papancha is one of the most wonderful of words. Papancha is a Pali word that we don't, certainly don't have a strict English translation of it, which is why I use the word papancha. Papancha describes this kind of proliferation and abundance of feelings, thoughts, associations, preferences by which we define ourselves and define the world. Papancha is the kind of gathering, the building, the building of our houses, we might say. The building of our stories. The way we weave together through stickiness, through clinging, thought and association and memory to arrive at a fixed point that we then assure, assure is true. We say, I am, and you are. It's so interesting, again, story when, when I was recently teaching in Israel, the place I was teaching was very near to a big military installation where they trained young soldiers. And all day long and all night long, often <laughs> actually, you would hear, uh, you know, and I guess like you would hear from any military installation, you know, this constant barking of commands and orders and shouting and response, you know, yes sir, yes sir, you know, going on all day long. And I asked people, I said, you know, what do you hear when you hear that sound? You know, and one person would say that they, you know, they had actually quite nice memories of being in the army. You know, that it was, you know, a time when they met a lot of people, they grew up. A lot of people said they sat there and listened to that and, and experienced themselves in this kind of building these houses of memory, of, you know, difficulty and aversion and, and authoritarianism and all this. And there was also a couple of Arab men on my retreat who listened to it and and heard the sounds of training to kill. And it was so interesting the different stories that people found themselves in. And that is actually Papancha when we get lost, when the sound becomes the memory, the association, the feeling, the weaving together, the I am, the you are. That is Papancha. It happens here, you know, somebody sneezes in the meditation room. It's a sound, isn't it? And then look what we can do with it. You know, uh-oh, you know, here comes the virus, you know, it's seeking me out, you know. I'm going to get sick, you know, why do I always get sick on retreat? This always happens to me, you know. Why don't people use a tissue, you know. The whole <laughs> That's papancha. And we get into this business with papancha. One of the things we get into is it's your fault or it's my fault. You know, the identification that emerges with this selfing is false, fault-finding. Now, we might say that identification is in one way, we, we would, I would call it the kind of active face of ignorance. I would call clinging the active face of ignorance. Now, this word ignorance in this tradition, please, is used very differently than we culturally use it. You know, ignorance doesn't mean, it's not meant as an insult. You know, you don't say, oh, you're so ignorant. You know, it's not meant like you're stupid or, you know, you're sick or you don't have any knowledge. Ignorance is meant differently. Ignorance is meant misunderstanding of reality. You know, and of course, you know, if you would say, where is ignorance, you know, you can't spot it, really. But it, 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 its active face is in holding and clinging. 
Now, one of the active faces, one of the active pieces of ignorance is actually um, believing there's continuity and permanence or looking for continuity and permanence in that which is impermanent and changing. One of the active faces of ignorance is mistaking pleasure for happiness and then living a life dedicated to pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain, believing that that's going to lead to happiness. And a third facet of, of ignorance, a third dimension of ignorance, is actually believing there to be some sort of fixed or solid entity of self where there may be none apart from belief. Now, we experience the suffering that is caused by ignorance. Because ignorance is sometimes what is called wrong view or unwise view, of course, leads us into certain courses of action, ways of responding to life, ways of, ways of responding to the world that sometimes get us into a lot of difficulty. For example, a lot of trouble comes to our lives when they are dedicated to pursuing the pleasant and getting rid of the unpleasant. A lot of trouble comes into our lives when we believe that happiness is actually having as many pleasant sensations as possible and no unpleasant sensations. Once I was in teaching a course for, for children, we were having a discussion about craving. And I asked the children, very young children, I asked them, what do you think happens? You know, what do you think you get if you go through life just always wanting things? And, you know, they kind of thought about it for a while, you know, like kids do. And then after a while, this little voice piped up, this little five-year-old boy, and he, he says, trouble. <laughs> yeah, you got it. <laughs> you see, you got it. A good deal of trouble, a good deal of difficulty, actually, comes from our heroic efforts to make things last when they can't be maintained, when they are inevitably subject to change. Suzuki Roshi once said this wonderful thing. So renunciation is not getting rid of the things of this world, but accepting that they pass away. Even more difficulty comes into our lives, of course, when we feel ourselves really to be limited to and confined within these definitions and conclusions and images when we insist on being someone. It causes so much suffering. Because then that insistence on being someone pervades all things, doesn't it? Pervades how we act. You know, imagine if I, you know, I can imagine going through my life insisting on being a meditation teacher. You know, imagine going into the supermarket and <laughs> giving a Dharma talk to the cashier. He's <laughs> <laughs> looking for trouble, isn't it? Isn't it? When I go through my life insisting on being a mother and you come in for an interview and I wipe your nose. <laughs> you know, this would look weird, right? But we can insist on being someone all the time, you know. It would be, uh, and that insistence, of course, directs our lives, you know. And how many things we insist on being. And all the kind of biographies we create about ourselves you know, who I used to be, who I am now, who I will become. Now, I think sometimes in the awareness of the suffering that this <coughs> insistence, insistence brings, 
we can even get into a whole other dimension of papancha, which is about the, the story about getting rid of the self. You know, that that becomes our new mission. That now to be free, you know, this notion of self gets me in trouble. Now to be free, I have to get rid of the self. This is a whole other papancha. You know, the self-improvement programs, the self-eradication programs, the kind of anti-self organizations, you know, the whole kind of project mind of, you know, what I'm doing to untangle myself. It's a whole other papancha. In one of the things of the Buddha, it says the Buddha speaks of self, also teaches no self, also says there is nothing which is either self or not self. And this, I think, is the mystery of emptiness, you know, to let go of the fixed ideas, to have no position, to understand that nothing gets in the way of emptiness that there is nothing to erase and nothing to get rid of. One of my favorite little pieces is by a great teacher who said, gaining enlightenment is like the moon reflected on the water. The moon doesn't get wet. The water isn't broken. Although its light is broad and great, the moon is reflected even a puddle an inch wide. The whole moon and the whole sky are reflected in one dewdrop on the grass. Enlightenment doesn't destroy the person, just as the moon doesn't break the water. The person doesn't hinder enlightenment, just as the dewdrop doesn't hinder the moon in the sky. The depth of the dewdrop is the height of the moon. The time of the reflection, long or short, proves the vastness of the dewdrop and the vastness of the moon in the sky. And we tend, of course, maybe we're tempted to make something or nothing out of emptiness. When we make something out of emptiness, it looks still like an object or a state to gain or to possess or an experience to happen, whereas emptiness really might be as close to us as our own breath. When we make emptiness into something, fixed, and we strive, and we search, and we reach. When we make emptiness into nothing, then that too can become a position that might very well lead us to sink into great sloth and delusion. And I think this is really the great, the great paradox. To, to understand that, that either something to gain, not something to get rid of. You know, sometimes in meditation we're encouraged and exhorted and instructed to make heroic efforts until we sweat beads. And then we also hear that at some point we might look back on our heroic efforts to be calm or to get or to get rid of something and to see them as futile actions performed in a dream. And this is really a kind of mystery we're asked to embrace. It feels confusing at times. 
in our own experience, I think we do know, you know, we do know when we're lost. We do know what it feels like not to be free. And we do know, we come to know the place of wise effort, to disentangle the knots of confusion, to be awake. But the difficulty that comes at the moment that we use concepts, they come to represent something. Even awareness comes to represent something. Emptiness comes to represent something. I mean, I think certainly meditation, we do make use of wise effort, you know, directed towards being awake. And we might, one concept that might be useful to play with, just to play with, is to think of awareness kind of like a mirror. And in the light of awareness, everything that is reflected that comes into the mirror. Now the mirror itself really doesn't have any preferences, any likes or dislikes or associations. The mirror of awareness doesn't say, I want to see this and I don't want to see that. It's unconditional reflection. Now the more that we look into the mirror, of course, the clearer it seems to become and everything it reflects becomes clearer. Everything comes and goes, arises and passes in that mirror. The mirror doesn't go seeking for things to be aware of. Rather, the nature of the mirror, we might say, is one of stillness. And stillness is something that's very powerful. Inner stillness is something that's very powerful because it embraces the sights, the sounds, the thoughts, the feelings. And stillness is powerful because softens the glue of grasping. It makes a nonsense of the agitation of grasping. And there's a kind of releasing in that softening of the glue of grasping, where things can arise and pass, ebb and flow, where the whole rich tapestry of life is revealed. And yet stillness, we might say, is the nature of clarity. When nothing appears in front of the mirror, the mirror essentially reflects itself. Just as it reflects whatever appears, when nothing appears in front of the mirror, the mirror essentially reflects itself. That's not something better, not something worse. This we might say, we might say this is the nature of awareness, the kind of ground of mind, the ground of being, from which all things spring, are born, and fall away into. And then we might even go a little bit further and ask, well, what would happen if even the mirror cracked? And there was nothing, and nothing to be reflected. And yet, of course, in the cracking of the mirror, there is still all things, and everything reflected. We might say that in, a, in the cracking of the mirror that everything shines in his, with its own luminosity. The Buddha once said that the sign of the liberated mind is that it is immeasurable, immeasurable. And I think there's, there's a, a kind of wonder in just holding that mystery and being willing to to probe beneath the surface of everything. 
and both in the surface and in the probing to understand the emptiness that is revealed. I'd like to just close with a poem translated by Stephen Batchelor from Nagajuna. It's called Walking. It says, I do not walk between the step already taken and the one I'm yet to take, which both are motionless. Is walking not the motion between one step and the next? What moves between them? Could I not move as I walk? If I move when I walk, there would be two motions, one moving me and one my feet, two of us draw by. There is no walking without walkers, and no walkers without walking. Can I say that walkers walk? Couldn't I say they don't? Walking does not start in steps taken or to come or in the act itself. Where does it begin? Before I raise a foot is there motion, a step taken or to come. Whence walking could begin? What has gone? What moves? What is to come? Can I speak of walkers when neither walking, steps taken nor to come ever end? Were walking and walker one, I would be unable to tell them apart. Were they different, they would be walkers who do not walk. These moving feet reveal a walker, but did not start him on his way. There was no walker prior to departure. Who was going where? We could just take a moment quietly together. <laughs> 